0: Welcome to Who is Jesus, a limited edition podcast by Central Western Church in St. Louis. Each week, we explore a different aspect of Jesus' life, identity, self understanding, and purpose in the world. Our goal is to look beyond the hot takes to the historical sources themselves in order to see more clearly who Jesus is and why it matters for us. For more information about Jesus or about Central Western Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com. And now, please enjoy this week's episode of Who is Jesus? Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 53. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray! Pray! that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness the word of the lord
1: do you um do you ever do things that intuitively you know you shouldn't do but you do them anyway and you're not even sure why a couple of weeks ago I shared that when I was a kid uh, I once murdered a frog a beautiful tiny helpless frog and it was not just a minor peccadillo it was extremely cruel and destructive and it's not just things i've done when i was a kid as an adult i've done things unhealthy things harmful things both to myself and others i've done cruel things manipulative things selfish self-centered things and so often i've just wondered why why do i do that have you ever felt that way because I really hope I'm not the only one. I don't think I am. For instance, you've ever heard the phrase "an albatross hanging around your neck." Any, anybody familiar with that? Okay. Um, that's a, a way of describing a load or a burden that is weighing us down, especially a burden of guilt. That phrase comes from an old poem called The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. It's a story about uh, a ship full of sailors that get caught in a storm and driven into icy, dangerous waters. And they're going to perish, but then an albatross flies alongside the ship and guides them to safety This innocent, beautiful creature saves their lives, but then one of the sailors shoots the albatross with a crossbow and then, as a punishment, has to wear the albatross, this carcass of this bird hanging around his neck. And one of the things in, in the poem, it doesn't even say why he killed the albatross. He doesn't even know why he did it. But it was an act of utter, an utterly incomprehensible act of cruelty and destruction. Why do those things happen in our world? Sometimes they happen to you. Sometimes we do them to others. Why? And even more, is there any way for us in our world to be free of these things? We're in a series in which we're asking the question, who is Jesus? As we approach Easter, we're using some of the remaining weeks to look more deeply at the question of why Jesus died on the cross. You know, the Bible describes the crucifixion with many different images Sometimes it's a sacrifice for sin. Sometimes it's a ransom. Sometimes it's an example for us to emulate. How do we respond to all of these different images? One response is to say, well, obviously the Bible contradicts itself, so we can just ignore it. Another response is to pick just one of the images and reject all the others. Both of those are huge mistakes. Why? Because the human condition is complex. There is no one simplistic problem with one simplistic answer. We we need all of these different images because the death of Jesus is like a multifaceted jewel. We need all of the facets, all of the images to help us understand what Jesus did on the cross. This morning, we're looking at one of the most powerful images of all. What is that? Well, let's um, look at this passage and find out by seeing three things this morning. We're going to see our battle. Second, we're going to look at our champion. And third, our response, okay? Our battle, our champion, and our response. Let's take a look. First, uh, let's take a look at our battle. This scene takes place in a garden called Gethsemane. Jesus knows that in just a few hours, he's going to be executed. So he falls to the ground and he starts praying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is facing the horrifying imminence of his death on a cross, but that is not the only thing, the only battle that Jesus is facing. All the way back at the beginning of the gospel, right before he begins his public ministry, is one of the most other famous stories about Jesus, his temptation in the wilderness. It says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now that word temptation is a word that it has a spectrum of meaning. On one hand, it can mean what we think of by temptation, but this word can also mean a test or a trial, a great struggle, a contest, a battle. Basically, Satan is assaulting Jesus here, trying to get him to abandon his mission. Now Jesus withstands the, um, the temptation, but then at the end of that passage it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus until an opportune time, which is kind of a weird and also very ominous thing to say, until we get to today's passage and we realize, oh, it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger said in The Terminator, I'll be back. We get to chapter 22 and Satan's back. This time... For a final assault on Jesus. So, um, earlier in the Last Supper, it says that Satan entered into Judas to get him to betray Jesus. Right after the supper, Jesus tells his disciples Satan has demanded you, he wants to sift you all like wheat. Satan is all over this chapter in the Gospel of Luke, and especially at the end of the passage we read. Um, here comes judas with this crowd to arrest jesus and jesus tells them this is your hour and the power of darkness that phrase power of darkness is an explicit reference to satanic power friends um what's going on here is is satan is launching a full-scale assault on jesus In fact, this is the climactic battle in a war that has been going on since the beginning of humanity. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, God creates the world and he puts the first humans in a garden. Everything is beautiful and perfect, but then Satan enters the garden in the guise of a serpent, and what what happens? He tempts the first humans, but how does he do it? He's gaslighting them. He's lying to them. Satan is actually assaulting The first humans, through lies, his attempt is is to deceive them and ultimately to enslave them. And throughout the rest of the Bible, it's full of all this imagery of slavery, especially slavery to sin and death. And standing behind all of it is the figure of Satan and his minions of darkness. Now, we need to pause right here because for many people in our culture, this whole thing just sounds preposterous, including perhaps some of you. But even if you might not identify as a religious person, most people in our world are at least open to some kind of spiritual reality that's at work out there in the world. And if you are open to spiritual reality, then um, why would we not also possibly be open to dark forces, dark spiritual powers that might be at work in the world? I mean, remember the question we began with, you know, why do we do things we know we shouldn't do, and we, we don't even know why we do them? And especially, how do we account for the presence of evil in this world? Not just evil at work in us as individuals, but evil that's at work in, in corporate systemic um, groups and powers. You know, Corporate systemic evil, things like white supremacy and the Ku Klux Klan here in America or the Bosnian genocide of the 1990s, or uh, the, the systemic use of rape as a tool of genocide by the Janjaweed militia in Darfur. All of these things are, are corporate systemic acts of evil, forces of evil. How do we even explain the presence of evil in our world? And, and understand something, that is not the same as asking, how do we make sense of evil itself? at the deepest level, there is no making sense of evil. The reason evil is so horrifying is because it doesn't make sense. One of the most powerful pictures of this to me is from the movie The Dark Knight. It's the second Batman movie with Christian Bale. You remember Heath Ledger played the Joker in that movie? He posthumously won uh, an Oscar award for his performance. But in that movie, the Joker rigs simultaneous explosions. One of them rips the face off a politician named Harvey Dent, and the other one kills Harvey's girlfriend, Rachel. Then the Joker goes to visit Harvey in the hospital, and Harvey's going nuts. Man, he wants to kill the Joker, but the Joker's sitting there saying, Harvey, man, come on, what's the problem? Look, I, you know, when you and Rachel were abducted, I was sitting in a jail cell. I'm not the one who rigged those explosions. And Harvey looks at him with daggers in his eyes, and he says, it was your men, your plan. And the Joker sits there, you know, with clown makeup on his face, and he utters that classic line, do I really look like a guy with a plan? You know what I am? I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. And then just to prove his point, he walks out of the hospital and blows it up behind him. That is the, one of the most one of the scariest pictures of evil I've ever encountered because it shows so clearly that there is no making sense of evil. The question is not how do we make sense of evil, the question is how do we account for the presence of evil in our world. The consistent witness of the Bible is that there are dark spiritual forces at work in this world The Apostle Paul calls them principalities and powers, but these are dark spiritual forces that infiltrate, inhabit, and animate not just individuals, but groups and systems and institutions and whole cultures, twisting them, distorting them, manipulating them, and enslaving them. It's like the Lord of the Rings, you know, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all And in the darkness, bind them. This passage is showing us that our world is a cosmic battlefield. And it's not just the world out there around us. It's it's a battle that's going on inside of us as well. As Dostoevsky wrote, the devil is struggling with God and the battlefield is the human heart. Listen, you know, maybe it's possible to account for the presence of evil in this world without God or without a devil. And if there is an account for that, listen, I'm all ears, but I've never heard one yet. This passage is showing us that our world and and the human heart is a cosmic battlefield. And that leads to our next point. We've just looked at our battle, but secondly, this passage shows us our champion. This idea of the world being a battlefield, it, it goes all the way through the Bible. But as we just saw, it goes, the beginning of it is in the Garden of Eden, right after um, adam and eve succumb to satan's attack god shows up and he says this means war but not war against humanity war against satan notice he says to satan i will put enmity that's a word that means war i'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers he will crush your head and you will strike his heel God is telling Satan that um, for the rest of history, Satan is going to be assaulting and attacking humanity. But one day, there will be a final battle. One day, a descendant of Eve will rise up, crush Satan's head, and set us free. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the final battle begins. The final battle in in the um, war between God and Satan. So it's not just... um, physical death that Jesus is facing notice in this passage here's Jesus he's praying and it says um, being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground now that word agony um, means anguish or torture but it's also a word that means a contest or a struggle or a battle that means that that Jesus is not just um, he's not just facing um, physical torture and death on a cross Jesus is entering a battlefield here and he's already beginning to experience open fire which actually helps us understand something about this story that has confused a lot of people over the years It, it says that Jesus is in agony in the gospel of Mark it says that he began to be deeply distressed and troubled that word distressed is way too wimpy that word that mark uses is actually a word that means to be shocked or to be quaking with horror at something here's the question why in the world would jesus be shocked i mean didn't he know that he was going to die and the answer is of course he did so why is he so distraught why is he so horrified One of the things that people have pointed out over and over again over the years is that there are lots of other martyrs, lots of other people over the years and centuries who have faced physical torture and death, and they've done so with way more poise, dignity, grace, and serenity than Jesus seems to have here. Why? The answer is because Jesus is not only facing physical torture and death on a cross here. Remember, he's praying, He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The reason Jesus is so horrified is not only because he's facing physical death. It's because he has to drink the cup. What's the cup? In the Bible, the cup is an image of all of God's wrath on evil, sin, and death in this world. So, for instance, in Isaiah 51, it says, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, the cup of staggering. Or in Ezekiel 23, it talks about, it says, you shall drink a cup that is large and deep, a cup of horror and desolation. You shall drink it and drain it out and tear your breasts the, the cup that Jesus has to drink is not just the cup of physical death on the cross, it's the furnace of God's wrath. That's the cup that Jesus is facing here. It's kind of like that story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Anybody remember that story from you know, childhood Bible class? In that story, King Nebuchadnezzar wants to throw those three guys into a furnace because they won't worship him. In fact, he's so full of wrath that he tells his servants to crank up the furnace seven times hotter than normal. The furnace is so hot that the servants that are just standing at the mouth of the furnace are instantly incinerated. That's what Jesus is facing on the cross. It's the furnace of God's wrath here in the garden of Gethsemane, he's already beginning to drink that cup. Jesus is standing at the mouth of the furnace and the flames are already beginning to devour him. And even for that, he still plunges in. I mean, think about how amazing that is. You know how sometimes you know that you're going to have to go through something really painful and difficult at some point in the future. You know it's coming, but there's still really no way you can um, imagine what it's going to be like until you really get there. For instance, have you ever gone for a root canal? And you sit down in the chair, but they don't get quite enough Novocaine in your mouth. And as soon as that drill goes in, you pop up out of the chair in agony. That actually happened to me once. You you want to say, listen, I knew this was going to be painful, but if I had known it was going to be this painful, I never would have showed up in the first place. That's what is happening to Jesus here. Jesus is actually getting the first taste. He's beginning to drink the cup. He's beginning to feel the full force of the flames of the furnace, and yet he still plunges in. I mean, this always reminds me of that story from Harry Potter where Dumbledore takes Harry to go destroy that magical locket in which Voldemort has deposited a piece of his evil soul. And the only way they can retrieve the locket is because it's, um, it's submerged in a magical stone basin that's, that's full of water. And, and the only way they can get it is for Dumbledore to drink all of the water, but the water is cursed. It's like drinking fire. And Dumbledore tells Harry, Harry, no matter how much I protest, no matter how much I beg for you to stop giving me the water, you got to make me drink all of the water. So Harry keeps filling the cup and Dumbledore keeps drinking the water. He's staggering. He's in so much agony that he cries out, kill me, kill me, because he would rather die than continue the torment of drinking from that cup. Friends, that is just the merest echo of the furnace that Jesus had to drink on the cross. And here in Gethsemane, he's already beginning to drink the cup. He's already beginning to feel the flames of the fire, and he still plunges in. But here's the most amazing thing. Jesus is plunging in and facing all of this for us because he's our champion. You know what a champion is? We hear that word and we think, oh, you know, whoever wins the final match or the final game, yay, you're the champion. But the original meaning of that word is um, a lone warrior or a lone combatant, somebody who represents their army, but instead of the whole army going into fight, the, the, the champion goes into like a one-on-one cage match, and if he wins, then the whole army, even though they didn't fight, they get victory in the battle too, because the champion is their representative. He does it in their place and on their behalf. On the cross, Jesus was our champion. Jesus faced the wrath that we could never face. He drank the cup that we could never drink. And Jesus won the victory that we could never win. Because on the cross, Jesus conquered all sin, evil, and death by letting it spend its full force on him. It broke Jesus, but in breaking Jesus, it broke itself. So that even though those things still exert tremendous firepower in this world, and they do, it's kind of like the Nazis after D-Day. Lots of firepower left, but the war is over. D-Day was the decisive battle. In the same way, the cross was the decisive battle. So as we just sang a little bit ago, his rage, the devil, his rage we can endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. Friends, on the cross, Jesus was our champion. He conquered evil, sin, and death for us, in our place and on our behalf. Now, how should we respond to that? That leads to our last point. We've looked at our battle. We've just seen our champion. But lastly, we need to look at our response. How do we respond? How should we respond to Jesus' victory for us on the cross? Well, Jesus himself tells us. He goes to his disciples in the garden, and he says, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, when Jesus says, Why are you sleeping? Um at the surface level, yeah, he's talking about being physically asleep. But this is also one of those questions that Jesus was always asking, questions that go beneath the surface. Because Jesus is not only talking about being physically asleep, he's talking about being spiritually asleep, and he's saying, wake up. Here's what this means. Remember, this world is a cosmic battlefield. And and there are spiritual forces, dark spiritual forces at work in the world that are trying to deceive us and enslave us. The challenge is, by and large, we're often asleep to that reality. One of the first parts of our response to Jesus' victory on the cross is to wake up to the reality that Satan is trying to deceive us and enslave us. And one of the main ways he does that is through ideas, stories, and narratives. For instance, um, Dallas Willard was a great Christian writer and thinker. He puts this perfectly in one of his books. He says this, Ideas and images are a primary stronghold of evil in the human self and society. They are the primary focus of Satan's efforts to defeat God's purposes with and for humankind. Thus, when Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea that the idea that God could not be trusted and that she must secure her own well-being. The main way Satan comes after you is not with a stick, but with an idea. So one of the, I mean, think about all the ideas and stories and narratives that, um, that fill our culture. The challenge is we don't think about them. We just assume them. Because they're constantly being fed to us through things like social media, films, TV, music, cable news, politics, and all kinds of other things. Things in our culture that train us not to be critical thinkers, but mindless consumers. What makes it even more challenging is that our world is moving so fast that we don't even have time to slow down and and think about these stories and, and narratives more carefully. On top of that, our world is so distracted that we don't even notice all of the stories, images, and narratives that are embedded in all of the things we consume. So waking up means two things. First, waking up means simply waking up to the reality that Satan wants to enslave us through lies, stories, images, narratives that want to deceive us and enslave us. But the second part of waking up means slowing our lives down enough, which is really hard in our culture, slowing our lives down enough that we actually have a chance to name and identify the images, stories, and narratives in our culture, and to begin to learn how to think more carefully about them instead of just reacting to them or assuming them. That's actually quite a challenge, because think about it. You know, our culture, it's really easy for us to think, well, any idea, any story, any narrative, it's either going to be 100% true or false, 100% good or bad. That's what the culture wars would have us believe. But in reality every story, every image, every narrative that's in our culture is going to be a mixture of truth and falsehood, a mixture of goodness and evil. In fact, the most dangerous lies are the ones that are 99% true. It's that 99%, it sounds so reasonable, so plausible, so compelling, that we don't notice that 1% that's leading us into darkness waking up means that we have to wake up to the reality that satan wants to deceive us and enslave us that's the first part of our response to jesus victory on the cross but the second is this notice jesus says rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation now we just saw a little bit ago that word temptation remember that has a spectrum of meaning so um, on one end of the spectrum it can mean what we normally think of as temptation So, for instance, when I lived in New York, sometimes I'd be walking through the park and people would be standing there calling out, hey, chief, what you looking for? They were trying to lure me with drugs or sex or whatever. It was a trap. And the temptation was the bait that was sitting in that trap. But other times, this word temptation can also mean a trial, not a trial in the sense of a courtroom, but a trial in the sense of a great tribulation a struggle, a contest, a battle, an experience of suffering that that tests our ability to endure to the utmost. It's kind of like a furnace. You know what happens if you put something into a furnace? It depends on what you put into the furnace. If you put hay into a furnace, it's going to immediately be incinerated. But if you put gold into a furnace, it's going to come out purified. The gold will come out of the furnace even more beautiful and more pure than it was when it went in. A furnace reveals the true nature of whatever you put into it. So here's the thing. In uh, the Bible, and actually you see this throughout the Bible, um, including things that Jesus says all the time, God doesn't tempt people. God is not setting traps for us. God is not standing on the street corner saying, hey there, what you looking for? So when Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation, he's not saying that we should pray, God, please don't tempt me, because God doesn't tempt people. He's saying that we should learn how to pray, Father, please don't let my trials turn into traps. Please don't let this furnace devour me. Please let this furnace turn me into gold. That's what he's teaching us to pray here. Friends, one of the main ways, in fact, the main way that, that, one, that this happens is prayer is a way of plunging ourselves into a, a completely different furnace, not the furnace of evil and suffering, but the furnace of the Holy Spirit, which throughout the Bible is described as a fire. Uh, in fact, there's a, an early church father, There was a guy named St. Basil, who had a very famous illustration, he talked about a branding iron. You know what happens when you put a branding iron in the fire? Uh, The branding iron remains a branding iron, and yet it begins to take on all the qualities of the furnace. It begins to take on the heat, take on the strength, take on the power and the intensity of the furnace, so that when you pull the branding iron out, it's got all these qualities now embedded in it, and it's extra powerful to do its job in the world. St. Basil said that um, when we plunge ourselves into prayer, It's like plunging ourselves into the fire of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, it it begins to make us more and more like Jesus. We begin to take on more and more of the qualities of Jesus. We begin to take on more of his courage, more of his strength, more of his endurance, more of his love. And the more we do that, the more we wake up, because pain has a way of waking you up, The more you become more like Jesus, and the more we're able to follow Jesus into all the furnaces in this world, and instead of devouring us, it actually turns us more and more into gold. And on top of that, we're able to to become people who can wake other people up to the rescue and the victory that's available to them through Jesus, our champion. One of the best illustrations of this, I know, is a story from the Chronicles of Narnia, Remember, that's a story. It's about a little girl named Lucy and her siblings, Peter, Edmund, and Susan. In this particular story, they're looking for their friends in Narnia because they need to join up with them because um, there's going to be a great battle that's going to happen that's going to decide the future of Narnia. So they're trying to find their friends. But throughout this book, Lucy, the little girl, she keeps having Aslan sightings. Aslan is a lion who's the king of Narnia and also happens to be Jesus. But she keeps seeing Aslan and she's telling her siblings that she saw Aslan and they don't believe her. One night they all fall asleep but Lucy wakes up to the sound of a voice calling out her name. It's Aslan. And when she goes to meet him, Aslan says, Lucy, you got to go back. Wake up your siblings and tell them it's important. You need to follow me right now. It's very urgent. But Lucy is afraid. She's saying, Aslan, what if they don't believe me? What if they can't see you? What if they don't want to follow you? She's filled with fear, but then she buries her face in Aslan's mane. And there must be some kind of magic in his mane, because all of a sudden she can feel lion strength coming into her. And as that happens, all of a sudden she sits up and says, I'm sorry, Aslan, I'm ready now. Let's do it. And Aslan says, now you are a lioness, and now all Narnia will be renewed. Dear ones, Jesus is our champion. Jesus is the one who won the victory for us over sin, evil, and death. And when you plunge your face into his mane, when you plunge yourself into the fire of his love through prayer, you wake up, you become more like him, and you're able to follow Jesus into all the furnaces of evil and suffering in this world. And instead of devouring you, they turn you into gold, and they turn you into someone who is able to wake others up to the victory and the rescue that's available to them through our champion, Jesus. If you're willing, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the furnace of your love that transforms us The more and more we plunge ourselves into your love through prayer, the more and more you wake us up, the more and more you rescue us, and the more and more you um, impart all the qualities of our Lord Jesus into our lives. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to be awake to all the ways that the evil one wants to deceive us and enslave us. We pray that you would set us more and more free, and we pray that you would help us to go out into this world as vessels of your love, vessels of your wakefulness, vessels of your Holy Spirit that others may wake up, see the love of Jesus, become more like him, that all their trials may turn them into gold as well. Father, we need this because you are the one who won the victory over sin, evil, and death for us through Jesus on the cross. Lord, make us more like our Savior. Make us more like our champion. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Who is Jesus? For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com.